Welcome to Voices from the Footnotes, a podcast series presented by the McGill University Library's Roar team. Each episode, we will explore some of the hidden histories at McGill, looking at places, people, and artifacts. The library collections are rich and interesting, but this series flows from the silences also present. It is our desire to gather stories and share them. It is our goal to highlight voices who have often been overlooked in histories and in archives. I am today's host, Sheetha Lodia. Before we begin today's episode, we acknowledge that McGill University is situated on the traditional territory of the Ganyagahaga, a place which has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. We recognize and respect the Ganyagahaga as the traditional custodians of the lands and waters on which we meet today. In today's episode, we cover a rather large stretch of history, from the 1940s to the 2020s, hearing from five generations of Black students and staff at McGill. We hear from Beryl Dickinson Dash, now Beryl Rapier, McGill's first Black carnival queen, and then from two pairs of fathers and daughters who were students, faculty, or staff, or all of the above, at McGill. You'll also get a small snapshot of Montreal through the years. Many of our guests are Montrealers. You'll hear about a lot of firsts and about unique challenges faced by Black students and staff. And this piece only just begins to tell the stories that deserve a place in our archives. And I am Beryl Rapier. Uh, what more do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm 92 years old and I live in Las Vegas. I'm fortunate to still be here. All my peers are dropping off. Beryl Rapier, her married name, was once Beryl Dickinson Dash, a student at McGill. We were fortunate to speak with her and her son Bradley, who arranged the Zoom meetup. Beryl became a sensation, both in Canada and the U.S., because she was, in 1949, McGill's first Black Carnival Queen. We hope to have an episode dedicated exclusively to the Carnival Queen tradition at McGill, There is, in fact, a great CBC radio piece with Beryl on her Carnival Queen experience. We'll provide links to that in the show notes. But getting back to this episode, we spoke with Beryl about her experiences as a Black student at McGill and what it was like growing up in Montreal in the 1930s and 1940s. I grew up in a French neighborhood called St. Henry. Well, it was French name, but it was St. Henry. And... um, there were just uh, three black families, really. Um, uh, my godmother lived on one street and my mother's good friend. And I went to Catholic school. I went to um, St. Thomas Aquinas. And uh, we didn't have middle school. We just had went elementary and then to high school. And then I went to Darcy McGee. And um, I did my uh, high school years there. And then I did a... Uh, one year after high school at Marianapolis College before I went to McGill. Yeah. And so, um, the, you know, where I, like I said, I was in a, we were in a French neighborhood. So we, I kind of spoke French a little bit then, learning French with the kids, didn't know how it was written, but, 
you know, got your, just, just playing with children. And, um, and that was it. And then when I went to, uh, like I said, when I went to McGill, I met my husband and we got married and um, then we went to Scotland. Bradley, Beryl's son, will often prompt his mom during the interview to have her recount particular stories. Mom, tell me a bit more about this, about when you were growing up, just the times you had, and like, she would t- she's told me so many stories of I when, <laughs> mind, like, like, just even when you were, uh, you know, just different time, like even trying to date someone, or you had to take the bus, and you could, you had a curfews, and oh, well, yeah, things. well, well, we did, uh, well, well, we weren't, we weren't loose like you kids are now, I mean, we had to, <laughs> No, I mean, really, we had to find a way home. I used to say to my, my mother used to give me a curfew. I was going to a party and I'd say, but by the time I get there, I'll only be there maybe. At, well, that's your problem. You have to be home by 10 or 11 or whatever the curfew was at that time. But nobody had a car. I mean, I didn't grow up with a car. I grew up with the streetcar and the bus. And so, I mean, times were really different. Everybody knew nearly everybody that you visited, sort of. I didn't go to anybody's home that my mother didn't know. And, um, and everybody was like that. So it was, we had a small kind of community that was like friends, but more like family. And uh, because that's what it was. And as I said, because I was in a French neighborhood, there weren't, there weren't many English speaking in the, in the area. So we just gravitated to the people who spoke our language. Um, like I said, I learned to speak French playing with kids, but it wasn't proper French. I couldn't even tell you how you spelled the words. But, um, but you know, that was it. And everybody walked to school and uh, or took the streetcar home. You know, that's how it was. And we went to the same church. And um, that was another gathering where I met different people. In fact, his best friend's mother that's how I became friends with her from going to church and school like that. That's how you became friends. It was, I mean, it was so different. It's the dark ages. Beryl shares with us that most of her friends and family came from meeting with other Anglophones in her neighborhood or else fellow Black community members through her churches where they had a close-knit group. It was the Union United Church. And uh, it was it was a black minister, and that's where we went. I did go to two churches because we were brought up Catholic, and I went to mass first, and then went to this church, which the nuns didn't like that, but I didn't care. I did it anyway because that's where my friends were. And um, but I would get in trouble nearly every Monday morning. They say, "Oh, I understand you're teaching Sunday school over here." I said, "Well, that's not a bad thing." Well, you're not supposed to be doing that, but I did it anyway. But however, so that, but that's what the times, you know, that's what our only really, um, even dances we had in the church, in the church basement. And, you know, people, even the same Oscar Peterson who became famous, started, he started there and his sister taught music lessons, you know, so the community was small. You practically knew everybody, you know what I mean? Everybody kind of, you know, he said, oh, that's a dash kid or that's a so-and-so kid. So that's how it was. You know? And you were the oldest. You tell, tell, tell what you're... Uh, yeah, well, I'm the oldest of four. As Bradley and Beryl mentioned, she is the oldest of four children. She told us that her mother was an only child and didn't want her children to grow up lonely like she did. When Beryl went to Sejep, she went to Marianopolis College which at that time was still a Catholic college. Well, it was Catholic, Catholic mm-hmm. college. And um, nuns taught 
there were none, nuns and there were uh, um, lay, lay people too, but there were mostly nuns. Um, well, actually, I liked, I liked it there because it's more individual, um, you know, but um, I thought I needed to get somewhere where I could meet some guys or something because it's all women. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I went from there there. Yeah. It, um, and most of the schools were not, most of the schools I went to weren't mixed anyway. They were all girls schools or all boys schools. Yeah. And even my high school was only girls, a girls school and the boy, and they didn't even keep the boys. We didn't go, we couldn't even go to recess at the same time. Oh. They would, yeah. They kept the boys at a different time than us. It's crazy, right? <laughs> Where it was a completely different building. Yeah. And separated the gate, uh, you know, fence. It was quite different. We didn't, I didn't ever went to a mixed school except okay. for university. Until huh? university. Not until university, right. Well, you don't, I mean, everybody did the same. So nobody thought of anything about it. You know, even the Protestants, I mean, it wasn't only the Catholics that it, all the schools were like that, they were separated until you got up to maybe grade 12 or, you know, the Protestant schools were together, boys and girls. It was at Marianopolis where Beryl first thought to apply to McGill. Oh, at Marianopolis, I thought about it, yeah. Yeah, I thought about it. I thought if I could be accepted, I'd like to go there. Although it was more expensive. I went to Marianopolis College because money-wise, you know, it was more, it was cheaper than going to McGill. And um, my mother was an enterprising woman because we didn't have the money. And she went to the purser when we walked in. I'm going to pay you in three installments. He was so shocked. He didn't even know what to say. And because uh, she didn't have the fees to pay right up front. And so that's how I got there. <laughs> and um, at that time, too, you know, there was a quota. So then they took so many from out of town so many out-of-town students and so many local Canadian students as well. So, yeah, so that's how it kind of went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When Beryl speaks of a quota, she means a quota of Black students, most of whom came from out of town. Out of a total student population of 8,500 at McGill, there were only 150 Black students. Jim Crow laws in the U.S., which enforced a racial segregation, were never formally present in Canada and in Montreal. However, Black people, like Beryl's father, held working-class jobs and lived only in particular neighborhoods, like Saint-Henri. Beryl is kind of our grandmother figure in this piece, and the rest of our guests comprise two father and daughter pairs. We'll go chronologically, beginning with Professor Emeritus Glenn Piggott and his daughter, Adrian Piggott, who was both a student and is now a staff member at McGill. Well, my, my first name is Glenn and my last name is Piggott. Glenn Piggott, I'm, uh, what would you like to know? I was born in Barbados uh, 79 years ago. Uh, so I'll soon be four score. Uh, just uh, a few months from now, I'll be four score. 
Uh, I was educated in Jamaica. I went to the University of the West Indies for my undergraduate degree. And then I went to the University of Toronto for two graduate degrees in linguistics. Those are my. Um, then I taught at the University of Western Ontario for a year in the uh, Department of Anthropology. Why anthropology? Well, because I worked on indigenous studies. Uh, I worked on Ojibwe. Uh, that qualified me for teaching in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Western Ontario. So I taught there for one year, and then I came to McGill in 1973. So my name is Adrian Piggott. Um, I've been a McGillian my entire life. I arrived on campus at eight months old and pretty much never left. Um, I was raised in Montreal uh, and have lived in the Montreal area my whole life. Um, I'm from a family of McGillians, so everyone in my family is a McGillian, with the exception of my boyfriend. Um, what else about me? Uh, I studied computer science and translation. Um, I'm currently employed at McGill as uh, the senior advisor for procurement and as the co-chair for the subcommittee for racialized and ethnic persons. And this past summer, I was elected as governor for administrative and support staff. Our next father-daughter pair is Ron Williams and Brittany Williams. Like Adrian, Brittany was first a student and is now also a staff member at McGill. Uh, Ron Williams, uh, class of 90, McGill. Bachelor's in science, uh, major in psychology. Um, so yeah, my name is Brittany Williams, Brittany. Um, and I, for right now, I'm the Acting Assistant Dean of Admissions and Recruitment at McGill's Faculty of Law, um, which still feels very surreal to say uh, because I graduated from the Faculty of Law two years ago, not even officially two years ago. Um, I like to joke that like the ink's not even dry on my degrees yet. Um, and somehow I'm ending up kind of on the other side of things. From Professor Piggott to Adrian to Ron and Brittany, we have snapshots of Montreal and McGill from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s until now. Unlike the rest of our interviewees, Professor Piggott moved to Montreal as an adult early in his career. His parents in Barbados were laborers and later immigrated to the U.S., Professor Piggott moved to Montreal after completing his PhD at the University of Toronto and after working at the University of Western Ontario. He arrived during the rise of Quebec nationalism, about a decade after the Quiet Revolution. So when I came, Quebec was, I had the stirring of this nationalism was right there. And it reminded me a lot about the of the initial phases when of uh, nationalism in Jamaica and in Barbados, uh, when the independence movement that was sweeping the British, British Empire at the time. So I had a, an understanding and some empathy uh, with the movement uh, as, it, as it developed in, in Montreal. Um, I didn't know 
much about Quebec, but Montreal I knew. I, of course, later, I, because I traveled a lot in Northern Quebec and Central Quebec, I got to know more of the community in Northern Central Quebec. But initially, uh, I was, I had some understanding of the movement that was taking place in the 70s. Uh, um, I wasn't here for the crisis in, in but I was here when the when the Parti Québécois won the election in 1976, I was here for the referendum. Uh, and look, I had some understanding and some sympathy for the, I never engaged politically, but I did understand the movement. How did people treat, did people treat you differently in your sort of day-to-day -day home life compared with your McGill life, for example? Well, look, I think we, black people everywhere uh, experience forms of microaggression. And uh, people here, I, I experienced that. There's no doubt about that. I experienced it at McGill. I experienced it in the community in Montreal. I, I, was, a, um, I, I was shielded somewhat being an academic and my own family was shielded a bit being an academic because we, the community, the circle, then the social circle that we sort of moved around in was, was largely composed of fellow academics and professional people. That provided us with some insulation and we lived in communities that were largely uh, not, uh, not the communities there that were predominantly black. We lived first on Nuns Island when we, that was fundamentally, that was certainly not black when we lived there, we lived on Nuns Island. Uh, uh, then we lived in, on the South Shore and, uh, and we moved to a, a largely Quebecois community. My neighbors were all Quebecois. We interacted with them. But uh, I, I experienced the same kind of microaggression. Sometimes you have to stand up for, you have to ignore ignorance sometimes, but sometimes you can't ignore it. So, uh, it's a fact of black life that uh, in white communities that uh, regardless of who you are, no, no one recognizes you until you say, well, I am. And you suddenly there's a slight change in attitude because for some reason, being an academic, being a professor, uh, brings out some, uh, so what you might, what you would expect people would always have, that is this sense of uh, humanity that would treat you with everyone with dignity and respect. But uh, we were, you we were shielded to some extent by virtue of the environment. You, both Professor Piggott and Ron Williams' family come from the West Indies, in fact. But Ron's experience of Montreal was somewhat different, being born and growing up in Montreal, like Beryl. Ron's parents were not well off, but were educated. They were teachers. Uh, that was, we, we had several different waves, if you will. Uh, because when I think of it, um, we, were for, well, we were born in Montreal. My parents were immigrants from Trinidad. Um, so we were first generation, if you will. 
neither of them obviously spoke French when they came here. Um, so we grew up and um, we grew up partly in, in um, a lot in La Salle, a um, little bit of Montreal, but then a lot of formative years, if you want to call that, in La Salle. And, um, you know, by, by no means were we, um, you know, uh, well-to-do or anything even close to that. You know, it, it was tough. It was tough. And at one point, my parents did get divorced. So it just turned a tough situation, a little bit tougher, as it were. But, you know, um, we ended up actually later on moving from La Salle. And my mom was a teacher. So that, that runs in the family. We have a lot of teachers and professors in our family. And um, she ended up uh, moving us to the South Shore in Brossard, which was like night and day when we look at, um, when we compare them to La Salle. And when I, when I, when we moved there, actually, I mean, you know, the whole, a lot of the South Shore was like, you know, your parking lots were like, your driveway was like rocks because <laughs> it was very, very new. And it was the 76th year of the Olympics when we moved there. Um, and I remember moving. So while we went to high school, we got bused to a high school in Greenfield Park. You know, so you, we did have other black students where we were living, not so much. A lot of French, uh, a lot of Greek students and a lot of Armenian students in that area. Um, a lot of women families in that area as well. Um, and I remember we, and but we went to um, elementary school. One of the schools we went to was one my mom taught at, which was in Westmount. That was an out of, that was like an out of body experience. You know, the kids, eh, many of them were not nice. They were not nice. Uh, a lot of them were not nice. They just they did not have the only people that they saw that looked like us were maids and butlers, and and I kid you not, because I, I some of them who were you know, nice enough to kind of uh, hold out their hands. I, I went to my house and they actually did have maids and butlers, black maids and butlers. And that's, that and the Jeffersons was basically the extent of their knowledge in terms of like knowing someone like that. Um, so that was tough. And I remember, um, you know, um, since my mom taught at the school, so very often we would actually stay after school because she's finishing some of her stuff for school and so on and so forth. So we took some time, we took uh, piano lessons and things of that, that nature. We'd stay at school, get our homework done. Through Ron's mother, he and his sister had a well-rounded education, but it was not easy in Montreal and their family had to endure their share of microaggressions and larger threats. Um, and there were times where like, I even remember my, my sisters actually had to run and lock themselves because my mom used to keep her car door open it was a yellow Volkswagen Beetle and uh, <laughs> clutch. Thank you very much. She, she knew how to work her clutch. And um, so she used to keep her car open in the days. And I remember there was these, a couple of times where they had to actually run in and actually lock themselves into my mom's car because kids were chasing after. Her. And then she'd tell somebody, go get my brother kind of thing. So I'd come and kind of save her from the angry mobs kind of thing. So we, so we, we went through that. We, we went through that and, you know, sadly, you know, because of those racial issues back then. And, um, but, you know, um, here we are. So we've, so we, we, we've seen some things um, added to the fact that uh, my mom also um, was a, a school principal, eventually went on to be a school principal. And her French was, because she never learned it at school, obviously, she only started learning when she got here. And I remember, I, I thought she was so brave. I remember, I think it must have been in the late... 80s, I believe it was, when she actually went, I think it was Ramouski or Trois-Rivières for a summer and took herself to learn French. So she actually uh, boarded with a French family there. 
uh, for a few months to get her French better, to learn better French, so which was a shock. <laughs> and there was no English, even the movies. She went to French movies. So, that's good. so she got a lot better in French as a result, you know, and, and it helped her with her, with her French, as it were. Ron's parents were heavily involved in the civil rights movement in Montreal, as were some of his relatives, including his father, who completed a PhD, and then moved to the U.S. to contribute and to teach there. Like Beryl, who was surrounded by notable Black figures, Ron met Black activists, athletes, and academics through his parents when he was growing up. Both, uh, both my, my dad and, and a number of members of my family also also very much involved in the civil rights struggle, both here in Montreal and, um, and also in the U.S. So a lot of those historical figures, we, we've actually met some of them, you know what I mean? Mm. Which, was, which was quite, and some of them like, have been to our house and, you know, people that, people think, hey, well, who is this? And like, um, you know, Mary McKeeba and her husband, Stokely Carmichael and people like that. Um, so you got to meet them. And I mean, even, even uh, John Carlos, um, I don't know. Do you know who John Carlos is? I don't. Okay. Have you ever, yeah, um, you may have seen it in the, was the 68 Olympics. There were two American runners that came gold and silver and then raised their fist in the black power symbol yeah. and the black glove. Number one was Tommy Smith. He got the right. gold medal. Um, and alongside him was his teammate, uh, uh, John Carlos, who got the silver. They did that. They got stripped of their medals and were basically uh, designated as persona non grata in the U.S. And he couldn't even imagine he had a silver medal in the Olympics in a 100-meter run. Couldn't even get a job as a gym teacher um, in the U.S. as a result of getting blackballed for that. He ended up coming to Montreal, actually, at one point. He played for a bit for the Alouettes. And during that time frame, that's when he, he met my parents and my dad and so on and so forth. So... You know, uh, you know, my dad especially also very much involved, like I said, the civil rights and so on and so forth. And uh, some of my uh, relatives here as well, um, very much involved in that as well. And you may have heard of the, uh, the occupation of, uh, in Concord- at Concordia in the computer room. So, you know, uh, um, my dad was there. My uncle was his, my uncle, his brother was there too as well. And a number of the people. So you know, very much one of those things that were always part of our family and just, you just knew. Um, so we used to spend a lot of time in the U.S. as well because spent time with him down there. And um, so you, you got to see another side from Canada. Uh, you know, you got to see the U.S., what was going on down there as well. And, you know, and it was very different context because um, here, for the most part, they'd only say things about you once you leave the room. There was very in your face. The racism was very much, they were not shy, you know, to the point where like, you know, we, we, there, when we used to drive, we'd kind of drive, try and drive during the day, not drive at night when we would see those states. Even when you go anything, any farther south than let's say Maryland, it was like, you know, you drive in the day and you pull over at night. If you've got to go through like Georgia and stuff like that, forget it. That's not happening. Not in, not after sundown. Because, you know, there was all kinds of things happened and so on and so forth. And we know people who have, that's happened to so on. You'll remember that Beryl described the Black community as close-knit for geographical reasons and because there were not as many Black people in Montreal. Even though Beryl's parents weren't quote-unquote activists, they were involved in the Black community and in helping fellow immigrants. So it, that was always close-knit. And my mother was a very 
powerful speaker of her own. I mean, and she every club she joined, she became the president. So um, she was always in, involved with something. So that's that's how we got involved as well. And um, and my father as well. He was he worked on the railroad, but he became a union man helping underprivileged people. So that was you know my life. That's how it went. You know. Each of our interviewees had a unique past to McGill. Beryl described a quota system for Black students at McGill. But on a day-to-day basis, in the mid-1940s, what that meant was that Beryl didn't actually see very many Black students. Her community and sense of belonging came from elsewhere. This is what her routine was like. Well, I, I got up and took maybe three buses to get to school. And uh, I had to walk up a hill to get to McGill and took a lunch. And, um, and you know, that's the time when it, um, you know, blacks weren't uh, just allowed any old wear. So we always met in groups, had our lunch together and stuff like that. You know, we weren't, yeah, we weren't accepted. It was, it was sort of, what, what can I say, subtle. You, but you knew it was there, you know? It, it wasn't like America per se. And like I think America, you knew blacks didn't go here or there. There were certain places we knew we weren't really accepted, but they didn't really come out and say it. But you know, you could sit there for hours and not be served or something like that. But um, so it was different. It, it, it was really different and none of us pushed our way because we knew about it, you know, we all sort of kept together. And that's why I say why I went, um, why I went, um, uh, what was I gonna say? Why I went to the the black church because I met, you know, at the people because at school, there was no, um, well, you never went to other people's houses, you know, like how kids do now, you're, you, it, it, it wasn't done. It wasn't done. So you were, you made your own friendships and you went to school and did your stuff and did your, you know, you, you kept your place. Try to get a job. You knew why you didn't get it and things like that in the summer, you know, stuff like that. So that, that, that's how it was. I mean, it's I've lived a long time. It seems like it hasn't changed. So, um, Everybody I said, oh, was not like that. I said, no, you know, it, it's it's still there. I mean, yeah, maybe not as obvious, but it's still there, you know. But I mean, like we knew it was there, so we just, you know, we just kept. We had our own groups that we kept together, and um, like I said, at McGill there was about six or eight of us. There were a couple of guys that were from South Africa, and like I think a couple from some other place, and they kept with us. But um, because that's what it was. I asked Beryl where she would sit in class and what kind of a student she was. Well, you know, I found the classes were so big. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, it's so funny when I, when this um, uh, competition stuff was going on, 
I had a, two Jewish guys who were in the same economics class with me and they kept saying to me, you need to come in late, you know, and not go all the way to the back. You need to come in late and walk right up to the front. Make a promotion. I, I said, I'm not doing that. And yes, you got to promote yourself. You got to do that. And so, because I used to just kind of always be on time and just get in and sit in my seat. You know what I mean? Don't make any waves. But anyway, I did that a couple of times. Of course, the professor called me out and he said, I told you, everybody knows who you are now. I called you. <laughs> so it, it kind of worked. But uh, no, I, I we kept her ourselves, really. I mean, I just did my class, got my, you know, went home, did my stuff. And that's how it was. I didn't live close to the university. I mean, I had to take two transportation to get there. So, um, so that's what I did. Walked home most times in the, in the springtime more than the winter. But um, and you love math? Were you, the subjects you love? Well, I, I I I yeah, I did love math. I did math. I did love. Math. I didn't love writing things. I never liked English projects and writing story because. I, that's always their opinion. I mean, if you if they didn't think you got the same thing from the same thing you read or what, it, you know, well, that was not the point. Well, I don't know. I got my own point, you know. So I always like math because it's a true thing. Two and two is always four. You can't change it. Whereas people give you a point, a point about sociology or a book you've read or what you got from it, you know. So, I mean, I, you know, I still had to do it because you had to have certain subjects you had to take. But um, yeah, no, I, but everything in my life I find was a great experience. That's Bradley again, Beryl's son. And by the way, when Beryl refers to a competition, she's talking about the Carnival Queen competition in which she was the first black queen in 1949. But Beryl's love of math meant that she actually wanted to be an engineer yeah, and I well, you know, I knew I knew it was hard um, for my par for my parents to get money together, get me this, to go there, period. And so I didn't want to fool around. No, no, yeah, yeah. But mom, you were, didn't you say you wanted to be a certain? You were you were hoping that you could have been a. Well, yeah, you know, one time I used to say I'd like to really be an engineer. Oh. And you know. No. Women weren't, to, you, know, you just be a teacher or, you know, and it's so, so weird to me now how life is. You can, women can do whatever they want. I mean, mine has taken a long time, but yeah, there were certain, you, certain uh, classes you couldn't apply for. You, they weren't gonna get, let you go in there. Cause I loved math and I thought, oh, I, I'd probably be engineer or architect or something like that. But no, no, you be a teacher or a social worker or something like, you know, that was the deal. Is it like that now? And I had to admit to Beryl that, in fact, it is still like that now with low percentages of women in engineering, ranging from about 12% to 22%. As we jump forward in time to the 70s and 80s, I asked Ron and Professor Piggott whether there were many Black students and faculty at McGill. There were not. There were not many. I, uh, if there if there were, you you'd know their names. Even in the larger classes, there were, were not many at all. In in science, in the science, yes, because there just there just weren't a lot. There, there just weren't a lot. Um, there were so few. Uh, 
Now, in the in the broader sense, you know, you 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 knew some people. Plus, if you did other activities, you know, um, you can get to like some of the other uh, like the Black Student Association. You know, you knew them from that. Plus, you know, I was involved in other things outside of McGill as well. So, you know, you 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 know these people from there. So you had that connection already before you even got to McGill. But um, there weren't there weren't a whole lot. Did your did your friends know about um, your parents? activism and their role in the black community mm-hmm. yeah it was something it was one of those things that you know with them i could speak openly of it and so on and so forth so yeah absolutely and how were how did they react to that what were some of the you know were they supportive yeah and they had questions because that was not the reality because when i when i think about it uh one was he was polish and the other two were italian so that was not the reality at all. I asked Ron what sort of questions he would get from his peers and how they would react to his recognition and naming of racism. Uh, you know, they, they, they'd ask like, okay, so, you know, tell us how, you know, the fact that you, because I talked to them like, about, you know, what was going on. And so things that happen, it's like, well, but that doesn't happen to us. Like, you know, so the, I'd say, well, yeah, it's, you know, you, the difference is, is that, you know, um, you're not perceived before you even hit the door. They can see me coming from a mile away. They, they don't know anything about you. You know what I mean? So, um, but they're, you know, they were, they were supportive and, and they got it. And they got it because they, they saw some things as well. You know what I mean? So they, they, they weren't, they weren't oblivious. That's for sure. I mean, I had, like I said, I had some friends, but I couldn't say that I kind of, this is, this is my space and, and I, and I feel like I belong here. I couldn't say that. I, I did feel kind of like from an outsider a bit. So um, absolutely. I felt more at home, even despite the friends, I felt more at home outside of McGill, to be quite frank. The idea of feeling at home in a space or feeling safe in a space will come up repeatedly with our interviewees. And some of what we hear is hopeful. However, some of what we hear is sobering. Professor Piggott began in the Department of Linguistics and then went on to become the first Black Associate Dean of Arts. He was the only Associate Dean at McGill at that time, which makes his accomplishment all the more important, and also explains why he had so much on his plate. At that time, there weren't multiple Associate Deans as there are now. Note that some of the subsequent audio is a bit patchy in some parts. Chalk it up to the side effects of working remotely. Well, when I came, uh, my department was very small. Uh, the linguistics department was started, I think, in 1967, I think. So, uh, so when I came, it was just barely six years old. To a large extent, I helped to build the department. I think it is, um, I came, there were a group of about six of us who were now you couldn't recognize the department is large now. It's uh, 20 people or so. But it was very small time. So I introduced, uh, course, several of the courses that were uh, formed the core of the linguistics program. I started perhaps stupidly because you spread yourself to, and sometimes because you con- people convince you that you can do a lot. So. So I introduced courses in, in 
many of the core areas. I, other people were not as generous with their time. I did <laughs> a great deal of my time. Do you think uh, that some of that, you know, we, we talk these days about um, the additional labor that Black and racialized professors have to, to take and women professors, do you think that was part of it? Of course, and a lot, not, uh, because, you know, some of it, I mean, I took on willingly, uh, uh, but I think that uh, the, some of the extra departmental uh, responsibilities that I took on largely because of the need for a, a non-white face. Yep. I remember at McGill in 1970s, there, there were not that many black professors. There still aren't. And there still aren't many black professors. In fact, I sometimes, at one point, I think, uh, a few years ago, I thought we had regressed. I actually said that. I thought we had actually regressed because I thought there were more when I came and in that period of their mid-70s or so, there were, there were black faces around, black professors in the English department. Yeah. But gradually they weren't replaced. They left and weren't replaced. And I, I don't know, I spoke out often about that. I actually reminded the, the university of its failings to actually to cultivate a diverse faculty in that. So on every occasion I, to do it, I, I did. Yeah. But of course, um, it's, I think now I can see a little movement, but that's largely because of the, the larger social context in which we live, uh, largely driven by what happened last year in, in 2020. Yes. Uh, but I, I don't know that Miguel would have moved. It's a very conservative place. I, I personally had a very, I mean, I was, I tried to make myself visible on campus. I did a lot of things. Um, I, I was on Senate. I, I, was, I was associate dean of arts. I chaired a number of committees. Um, I, so I, I did a lot of things at the university, but that took, I mean, uh, that's a burden that uh, you have to carry if you are set you're part of such a small community. And the university wants to pretend that in fact, that it has uh, a sort of diverse face. And, yeah. But it, it really doesn't, it never did. And, and I, I, of course, I could have refused anything, but um, I thought if I, I didn't want the university to, to be this bastion of whiteness, only so. How did you deal with uh, pushback? You know, when you when you would speak out about the the paucity of of black faces on campus or um, the need to diversify, how did you react to the pushback? Well, you know, there was no pushback. I was just ignored. I mean, the point is, the university didn't push back. You never. 
I mean, I worked with a lot of principals and they were, and they, they have broad smiles and they, they nodded understandingly. And but they did nothing. And I can name them all that. They did very little to move the university. Right. Uh, but uh, I had some allies. Uh, um, I had and good friends and, and in the white faculty who would support me. Uh, but the university had a way of dealing with the lack of diversity by actually sugarcoating it. Uh, there was, a, I don't know if you're aware of a requirement that in the, that the federal government had imposed on institutions that got federal money that they had to provide a report annually uh, to show uh, to, on the diversity of the faculty. Of course, the university would not, would argue that it doesn't collect data on, on by race. Uh, yes. So, so uh, it couldn't know, but it would uh, group uh, all the Asians and the Blacks and the Asian South and Asians in one group and say, see, got X number of uh, racialized faculty. And it, it gives a, an appearance of some, some diversity and there is some diversity, but the truly uh, marginalized groups, the indigenous people and the Blacks, uh, clearly not represented, but the university would find ways not to report figures. We have learned that, in fact, data collection does occur at the university with respect to race and gender and ability these days. But not all of that information is public. Many departments and faculties, such as the libraries, have initiatives to collect demographic data based on self-reporting. We'll link to some of those in the show notes. Stay tuned for part two of this series on Black history at McGill and in Montreal as we move forward through the years until present life at McGill. As always, look to our show notes for additional material, such as timelines, photos, links to archival material, and more. Many thanks to Beryl Rapier, Bradley Rapier, Professor Emeritus Glenn Piggott, Adrian Piggott, Ron Williams, and Brittany Williams. Thank you to Professor Natalie Cook, director of this project at McGill Library's Roar team, and to Jacqueline Sundberg, associate producer. Our title song, Happy Sandbox, was composed by Mativ and sourced from freesound.org. All composers are listed in our show notes. I'm Sheetha Lodia, producer for this episode. Thanks for listening.